0: Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk.
1: Okay, so we left off um, last week talking about how he, Dahmer is really starting to fantasize about murder more, and he would actually even thought about um, getting this jogger who he had you know witnessed coming by at this certain time every single day and the day that he went out and was going to assault this uh and murder this jogger he ended up not running that day uh talk about a stroke of luck my yeah, goodness really, wow um so his fantasies are starting to increase so at this point he's 18 years old um his parents are no longer on the, under the same roof he's actually living in his childhood home by himself dad is remarried and mom has taken herself and his younger brother away from um, the family and, and has told Jeffrey, don't tell your father um, where we are. He, because his brother was under 18, she didn't want to give up custody. Uh, so because there was an ongoing intense custody battle during the divorce and Joyce was awarded full custody of Jeffrey's younger brother. So again, you know, we have the situation where Jeffrey's just sort of caught in the middle and triangulated into his parents' mess even after the divorce. And he is live but but he's now living in this home alone, which is a recipe for disaster. Very much so. Yes. So imagine all this free time. He has to think about things, fantasize about things, give into obsessions, compulsions, whatnot. Um Dad actually had moved into a hotel after the divorce. Um and, so, and Joyce and, and David, the little brother, had moved away. So he's in this house by himself. So two weeks after his graduation, so we're looking at June eighteenth, nineteen 1978, Dahmer observes a young man hitchhiking. Um, so he finds himself attracted to the boy, and, and he asks him if, you know, you want to ride back to, to my house and we can drink some beer. Uh, the boy's name, the teenager's name, was Stephen Mark Hicks. He was another recent high school graduate, and he was on his way to a concert. Um, so he went over, he agreed to get in the car and, and go with Jeffrey to the, ho- to his house. And of course, cause he lives by himself at 18 in this house. He has, you know, my God, the sky's the limit with whatever he wants to do. Right. Um, so he spends about two hours at Jeff's house and he then starts to state that he has to leave. Um, he has to get to the concert, you know, thanks so much for the beer. I gotta go. This does not sit well with Jeff. Well, no. <laughs> No, because as you and I have already introduced in the first episode, there are serious issues around abandonment. Yeah. So the it turns into an argument and it results in a physical altercation ending in Jeff coming up behind him and striking him with a 10-pound barbell, knocking him unconscious. Hmm. The irony in this is this is how Dahmer actually dies in prison. Oh,
2: oh my gosh.
1: So I thought that was really... And, and, Clearly, it's much more. There's a lot more to the story, and we'll get there in a couple episodes. Yeah. But I do think it's quite ironic that this was his first murder and also the way he dies.
2: Very, very ironic.
1: <clears throat> so um, he then takes the barbell uh, and, and he chokes Hicks until he's dead. So I think he mm-hmm. takes the barbell like around his neck and he chokes him until he's dead. Oh, as so far unplanned. as it was so, an unplanned. Or maybe we're thinking. I, I want to say that what we do know about Jeffrey at this point is that he's completely reactive and impulsive. I don't think he was intending on on even he may have had fantasies of getting him unconscious. Mm-hmm, um, so right. what we do what we do know about him at this point is he had a fascination with um, drugging people and wanting to sort of lie next to their bodies and listen to them breathe. So okay. I, I think that his intention was probably to get him intoxicated and to get him unconscious. But I think it's uncertain at this point if his motivation was actually to murder him.
0: Gotcha. But
1: when this boy reacts or excuse me, when this boy says, hey, I got to go. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey has an intense reaction to that and then impulsively is like, no, you cannot go. Um, right. Even if that means me killing you, your physical body needs to stay. I own you now. Gotcha. Okay. So this is, as far as we know, this is Jeffrey's first known murder, and he was barely 18 years old. Mm. So this is where now he starts to incorporate the sexual stuff with the violence. He stands over the body and he masturbates after he kills this boy. And according to Jeffrey, it was because he was happy with what he had accomplished. Um however we want to interpret that we yeah I mean,
2: more than happy right
1: like mm-hmm. turned on. he's turned on he's in control this boy's not going to leave him he, he's not he's not concerned about a body that can actually communicate and reciprocate a relationship he's all about the physical yeah. body and the possession right okay and the control so then what he does is clearly he realizes he's murdered this kid he moves the body under the crawl space of the house
2: Hmm.
1: So we know that's going to rot and stink. Yeah, that's not going right? to go well. And it's June, so it's hot. Oh. Yeah. Again, so, not planned, right? Not what? Again, not planned. Like, no, not planned. I mean, so much them. of this. He's learning, and, and you'll see, he starts to learn, right? So he's barely 18. He's never murdered before. He's now starting to learn um, what his ritual needs to be and part of it is a psychological ritual and some of it is just to get rid of evidence right <clears throat> so he needs he knows he needs to dispose of the body so he dismembers it and he puts the parts in three trash bags in the back seat of his father's car <laughs> yeah it, yeah right again in june so yeah. At 3 a.m., I guess he's driving to dispose of the body. He's stopped by a police officer due to driving into another lane, probably drunk. So mm. he's able to remain extremely calm, despite the fact that he has three trash bags filled with a cadaver in the back. Mm. And there's an officer asking what's in the back seat of the car. Wow. So I know for me, I'd be shitting bricks. Yeah,
2: right? God, well, Yeah. I wonder, I mean, was he calm, cool, and collected?
1: I don't, and this is where I don't know how much of this is is the detachment, or how much of it is the potential sociopathy, or how much of it is the other stuff we've talked I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he tells the officer it's trash, and he had intended to dump it that day. And then he explains to the officer he's actually driving late because he has insomnia. <laughs> Um, and then he goes on to this sob story that his parents had recently divorced and he couldn't sleep. Um, he was suspected of drunk driving, but he was able to get out of the entire ordeal with a $20 traffic violation. Yeah. So he escaped murder and a DUI. Wow. Okay. If that isn't positive reinforcement, I don't know what is. Yeah. and
2: And considering he's practicing at this point, he's getting validation for okay, yes so that worked you know I'm I'm pretty good at this
1: look at how easy that was it's almost like um when you when you talk to people who are like serial cheaters yeah you know it's like the first time they do it they, they might be like I don't know if I'm gonna get, and the more they get away with it it's like it just becomes so easy well and the more careless and cavalier about the whole thing right right so he he goes directly home and he, he does not go to where he was going to dispose of these bags. At least he had enough sense. Right. So he disposes the trash bags in a drainage pipe behind the house. So now they're back in the house. Hmm. So the Hicks, the family of this boy, they file a missing persons report, but the case goes cold. Um, and it's in the next month when Jeffrey's dad and fiance move back into the home discovering he was living alone so the this dad didn't know that dad thought mom and david were home oh and so so jeff's and and here's another adjustment jeff's father married his fiance uh december of that year so now he has a new stepmom on top of everything too okay so this is this is um his our, our first introduction into definitely some serious reinforcement around, wow, that worked. And I might actually be really good at it. and It mm-hmm. feels kind of good. Yeah. Um, however, we will learn that it didn't, didn't um, set all that well with him. He was, there was some disruption over it and also um just it, his ability to detach from it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I hear what you're saying as far as like, it's, it's, it's hard to know whether it was the sociopathy or the total detachment from kind of just reality or being an average person that would have all kinds of, you know, a range of affect and would be connected to anyone he's having a conversation with. It strikes me one of the reasons why he's such a good con is that He's just not attaching to any of your reactions. And when we see that in another person, we say, oh, this person's not nervous. They're not, you know, the cops are reading all that behavior, but he's not any of that behavior because he's just completely detached from the situation. Or is that,
1: or is that just part of his sociopathy? You know, I don't know. Right. So how much of this is dissociation from trauma? How much of it is, how much it is a combination of both? We don't know. Right. But what we will figure out, we're going to take a break here. But we, what we are going to figure out is how, um, as he goes into the military and starts to mature, that all of this stuff becomes compounded with other environmental stressors, and this all begins to unfold and become more compulsive and yeah. and uh, a lot more intense
2: and escalate. Obviously, mm-hmm.
1: okay. We'll
2: take a break. This is Terror Talk. We'll be back in a minute. <laughs>
0: While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show.
2: back um Kathy we're uh, I think he goes to the military
0: next yeah
1: right so dad moves home and he starts to see that Jeff is drinking quite a bit Mm -hmm. um and he actually starts to take Jeff to AA now what dad doesn't know is Jeff as much as he was really satisfied in the moment with what he had done he really can't erase his thoughts of his first murder so the only thing that could temporarily numb this feeling is drinking a lot of alcohol So he spends, he's in, he's actually in probably college. I don't know if he's at community college or whatever, but he spends his first semester of college completely drunk. He eventually drops out. So dad's going, okay, you know what? We need to, we need to try something else here. And he encourages Jeffrey to join the armed forces. So Jeffrey does, they do a medical screening. However, he hasn't administered any psychological assessments. So I want to take a pause here because you and I both in this field realize that so much around assessment, especially with military and law enforcement, we now do screenings psycholo- you know psychological assessments are basically whether or not somebody is is fit for this kind of duty mm-hmm. and so it would be really interesting to think about what the assessment may have picked up and I just wanted to you know maybe hear your thoughts on on what you think
2: about this yeah so if they had done
1: um you know if somebody had picked up
2: on something and said we've got to do a full psych testing on this kid because they wouldn't have done it on everybody anyway sure um but if something you know if something if somebody was in tune and kind of picked up on something but also kind of liked him and
1: just wanted to
2: figure it out i guess is the only reason why they would have psych tested him you know right out of
1: the gate, right? Uh, I think at that time, maybe. But now I'm pretty sure they do psychological screenings for everyone. I could be wrong about that. But Mm -hmm. I know, like, for example, for law enforcement, they certainly do. And it's more of a screening in process versus a screening out process. So it's not so much that they're looking for somebody who's sick, but they're looking to see whether or not someone is actually fit to do this kind of work. So you don't don't necessarily... necessarily have to be completely mentally ill but you may just not be fit and so I'm wondering if they would have done that just a, a basic screening would he have passed and this is where I think we have this is where we have to differentiate between the sociopathy piece versus the actual men- an actual mental illness because with sociopathy he easily could have passed
2: yeah so so you would do some cognitive testing to see if the thought processing and all that was in order and
1: then you do personality testing, right? right? Mm-hmm. And I, I believe the MMPI was the original one was around at that time. So anyway, just the yeah. interesting component to think about whether or not he would have even made it into the military if it was yeah. not. Because I, because I,
2: you know, one of the more interesting things on an MMPI I always like is sort of the faking good and faking bad, mm-hmm. and also sort of peak, peaking narcissism, you know, that kind of stuff. He just sort mm-hmm. of what his, but he's so. I I wonder if it would have picked up the detachment, the dissociation. And then also I'm thinking, I, I was struck by what you said about, you know, he started to drink and I was thinking, well, his coping skill, his internal brain, his brain's coping skill of dissociating after he had committed this murder and had something very like kinesthetic, very powerful to take around with him inside of himself the the his regular level of dissociation wasn't enough. He had to dissociate and detach even further with alcohol.
1: Right? Isn't that crazy?
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. I and I can understand that because it's just like okay, it was okay when I didn't have these very palpable memories with me, and and then now I have all these. Now it's layered. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that I think may have popped up too is debasement. I think he was really self loathing. Yes and i think we would have seen that um, if he'd
2: really come up right yeah if
1: he was honest and here's the thing too for people who are not in the industry a lot of people think well he could have faked it there's what are there what are called uh, embedded validity measures in these tests which mean people don't really you can't really fake these tests Right. um and it'll show if the person is trying to fake the test so it would have been really interesting to see if he would have if he would have feigned if it would have been accurate I just would have been really interested in looking at his Mmpi at this time
2: yeah and I'm imagining I don't know for me I would have loved Aurora shock oh God that would have been incredible MMPI. yeah
1: because
2: if if you couple those two tests together you get it's almost un you're just nobody can fool that like that those two combination the combination of those two things I just feel like Pretty powerful yeah it, his stuff would have totally come out on the Rorschach and then the the MMPI would have probably supported that for sure oh, that's so good
1: yeah <laughs> that would have been really good don't <laughs> like, my machine now
2: I'm having a compulsion yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, that would have been fascinating. Right. So okay. he does get in, as we know. He, and his basic training actually goes very well for him. He earns a marksman qualification badge for his shooting score with, uh, with the hand grenade on February 16th, 1979. So, again, when he puts his mind to it, he's a smart guy. He's able to focus. He's able to. And it's also a very structured, concrete task, too. Yeah. There's nothing emotionally driven about this task. He then earns another marksman qualification badge for the 45 caliber handgun on March 3rd, 1979. Um, his advanced individual training, uh, so, so anyway, sorry, he does well, but then he goes into an advanced individual training, and this does not go so well. Mm-hmm. And, and I pro- it's probably because it is more individually focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot more attention on him. And yeah. probably higher expectations because it's advanced. So he's at Fort McClellan. He was beat up by several other members in his unit after being told they would have extra physical training because of his alcohol. Um, so, yeah. So he, he screwed them.
2: Yeah, he couldn't help himself. He's got a it's, – it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if he was drunk or sober when he took the marksman exams. But, you
1: know. Probably drunk yeah
2: i mean drunk to us but stable
1: to him right it's like, how he learned to function he couldn't it's it's like a, with a um you know pathological addiction of any kind that becomes their baseline their normal their homeostasis and without it they look off
2: yeah i mean without it he would have been shaking he never would have passed mm-hmm. uh, but 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 he wasn't probably drunk to the eye you know? right
1: exactly just, just enough to stay stable, which is really crazy. Right, so he, he ironically becomes a field medic. And so he learns more about anatomy, anatomy at this time. But uh, the dissecting and dismemberment, he had already you know, learned as a child. So he didn't
2: know he did the job, right? Like he was already good at that. He's already
1: good at that. So, but this training was actually more focused on bandaging wounds and splinting. Um, and for the first time, for someone like Jeffrey, who was so self-loathing, this is the first time he was actually outgoing. He was fit, hmm. so on so physically on the out externally, he looked really together and in good physical shape. Mm-hmm. But inside, his alcoholism um, and his internalized homophobia would would start to really catch up with him. Yeah. Um, and I, I just want to make a note: is we see this a lot in the gay male community, and this has uh, been an issue even all the way back. Through the AIDS epidemic, is I have to look healthy on the outside because a lot of people might think I'm unhealthy on the inside.
2: Oh. Uh,
1: so there's a lot of that. I need to look healthy. And this this happened a lot during the AIDS crisis, where a, a lot of uh, gay identified men would would just go nuts at the gym because they didn't want to look sick. So um, whole another level of passing, I guess. Right? Totally and
2: that's so so layered that all of that that is just such layered prejudice
1: absolutely and and also you know that was um layered with substance abuse and unprotected sex and i mean it's just that and this is that era where we're going into the 80s so um after his training he's transferred to germany and and he's as we know he's a loner he would shut out the world. So over the weekends, he would drink himself to sleep. You know, after a while, he, he started to loosen up and he would invite others into his bunk, but for martinis to drink. Um, to some people, he was considered really likable and charming, but to authorities, he was completely defiant. So I want to stop there for a minute and just look at textbook mm-hmm. oppositional defiance, uh, narcissism, conduct disorder, antisocial, whatever, as you have this superficial charm But uh, accompanied by this, um, you know, disobedience to authority.
2: Yeah, I mean, for our regular listeners, you saw that we've talked about it with Charlie, we talked about it with Ted, it's kind of a theme Mm -hmm. in their early adulthood and, you know, childhood, it's, it's definitely... It's, it's interesting because as we do these kinds of shows, we're seeing these sort of similarities. They're all so very different in how their pathology played out. But it's interesting to call attention to
1: the similarities. similarities yeah. Yeah. I mean, he and this is where I think a lot of people um, who assessed him doubted the whole, you know, schizotypal piece because they're like, he could choose when he wanted to be charming. But, mm-hmm. but again, we also don't know how much of that was in a drunken state, a dissociative state. We don't know, which can change things, too. Uh, absolutely. So by this time, this is important, he still has never had sex with a woman. He is in the military in the 1980s. There is a don't ask, don't tell. You are beaten up, killed, murdered, lynched if you come out as a gay man or woman in the military at this time. But so his fellow soldiers find out he, he's a virgin. Um, and he's never been kissed by a girl, but they're not putting, this is, I, I, I don't know if they're putting together he's gay. I think they just think he's deve- he's, he's just um, a late bloomer yeah. because he's kind of odd. Um, so he, and he's closeted. So his bunkmates try to help him out and they take him to a four story brothel called Annabella's house. Hmm. And they leave him with one of the ladies, but they find out later that evening that nothing actually had taken place um, when he was in her company. They didn't even kiss, they just hung out. Yeah. Um, so that's oh, like
2: a bit of a bad TV movie from that time.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, and I would imagine that the woman knew, but never said anything to anybody. Yeah. So this then um, now takes us to the fall. So it's Thanksgiving, 1979. This is a really interesting story. So he's, he's still hanging out with fellow soldiers. They're all invited to another soldier's home for Thanksgiving dinner. And there's this blizzard uh, that makes it really dangerous to drive. I automatically start to think about like the shining when I hear this. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so he, Jeff and his fellow soldier are provided with a place to sleep. They, they're like, you guys are not leaving. You're not going home. But Jeffrey being as uh, just, you know, wanting his own personal space and, and not liking a lot of company He's not really satisfied with the sleeping arrangements. And he makes it clear that he's going to he's going to leave and he's going to walk back to the barracks. Um, and it is it's snow blinding out there. I mean, you can't. And they're like, you can't really. I mean, we really don't want you to do this. They're recommending that he doesn't leave, but he leaves anyway. And he. Um, it causes his fellow soldiers to conduct uh, an unsuccessful search. So they go out. They end up coming back to the house. We, we couldn't find him. But then he returns to the house four hours later. He's missing his eyeglasses and he appears confused and he has blood all over his clothing. Oh my. So clearly his. That doesn't look suspicious at all. Yeah. Right. So clearly the fellow soldiers are going, did he get beat up? He was drunk. They have no idea. However, this is one of the various disappearances that began happening. Um, he would do this, and he would come back, and he would show up, and he would have blood all over him. So he attends this Oktoberfest in Munich on November 22nd, 1980. So a year later, hmm. and he doesn't return until November 29th of the same year. So he's gone a week. He's missing basically. He returns again, blood on his clothing. Again, there's some speculation that that he was actually murdering at this time due to the several homicides that happened in close proximity over that time frame. So yep. this starts becoming a trend for him. Yeah. So after various incidences of drunk and disorderly, he's dishonorably discharged from the army. They've they've given him a chance and they're done. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
2: right. I mean that was a fait accompli as they say exactly and that and
1: clearly not honorably discharged so he, i yeah, know military
2: doesn't put up with that kind of
1: shit absolutely not so he has two comments about the military that he actually spoke about one he actually enjoyed the structure of the army which i really think is true he grew up with no structure he grew up with a ton of chaos um i do believe it provided him that
2: well, it, 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 um, it speaks to the need for a borderline condition to fight against structure, but really desperately needing it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And then the second uh, piece is he could not have committed any of the murders due to being around so many other soldiers. Uh-oh. So it helped his compulsions to be yeah. in the military. Yeah. Which is why he would go on a week-long binge, because then he could actually act out.
2: Yeah. And whether he was murdering or just bludgeoning or getting into fights or I mean, we just don't
1: we don't know, but we, I will leave it with this before we take a break. Two soldiers actually come forward and one reported being raped, raped for 17 months and the other had been drugged and raped on one occasion in an armed personnel carrier. So he was oh, he was up their- to no good.
2: Sorry, they didn't know their attacker,
1: I guess. Oh, no, they came forward. and oh, they yeah. did it. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, so um, this was I don't know how long after, but he, he so he was up to no good while he was there.
2: Okay, so say that again. One was raped repeatedly for 17 months. 17
1: months and the other had been drugged and raped on one occasion in an armed personnel carrier. 17 months, my God. And my guess would be that at that time um, they, they may have considered him uh the the victim uh homosexual it may have been looked at as um mutual combat you know a lot of ignorance yeah i imagine the victim wasn't going to come forward
2: because of you know the things people would have said or he would have been drummed out of the military as well
1: exactly and this is we see this a lot today when we talk about victims coming forward is is it's not always the safest choice even though it's 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 an important choice we need to be supporting our victims it's not always the easiest choice no yeah it just takes it
2: and and it's not um it's not bs when we say it takes incredible courage because you you give up a lot that's right come forward yeah um so we're gonna take a little break and uh back and yeah no I'm gonna I'm not gonna tease it there's something very interesting we're gonna talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, just give us a minute we'll be right back okay we're back welcome back to terror talk I believe we have a little bit more military to finish off here
1: yeah so we ended with um, the two soldiers who had come forward and I think we just need to Look back at this second part for tonight, which is we're looking at somebody now who has had ongoing adjustments, stressors, negative coping, increased risk factors. What we mean by that is, you know, more substance abuse, um, more isolation, anger. And he's also learned how to literally get away with murder.
2: Yes, he absolutely has. And then, I, and then I was thinking, like, if he actually cared about the military on some level, he's now having, they've abandoned him and he's been rejected.
1: Correct. So now what he, what he um, actually liked about the military, that is now gone, but he's still coming off this high of the murder and, and the escape, which is probably euphoric um, and maybe even a defense from his depression and anxiety. So he's, he's feeling limitless at this point. Um, and disappointed all at once right right so there's shame in there but then there's all it's also uh the it's also sort of um what's the word i'm looking for um god dang it i'm not sure we'll come across it yeah uh it's getting canceled out with the with the high from this other stuff right i understand the armed forces dishonorably discharge him and they say you know we're, we'll buy you a ticket anywhere. You just need to get the fuck out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So they buy him a ticket and he chooses to go to Miami and he ends up in Miami and he starts to drink himself to sleep in hotels. He's getting kicked out when he can't afford to pay the bills. He's starting to sleep on the beach and inevitably he becomes homeless. Yeah. Right. What's going to happen? So right. he, he's now forced to call his father in Ohio and so his dad flies him home to Cleveland because he could not quit drinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So all of this is happening, but before he goes back to Cleveland, there's an important historical piece here, and there's a lot of speculation, um, and I'm gonna, i, I by the way, if anybody's interested, interested, a lot of the information, especially around this piece tonight, is from a book called The Dahmer Book, and the author's name is Stephen David Lampley, and he also wrote a book called Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer, and he has a lot of um, he has a lot of experience in this field, and really, really great book. He writes about a lot of stuff um, that most people who have written about Dahmer don't talk about. So, if you're interested in more, I recommend this book. So he, he is, I'm taking him back to Florida before he gets to to Cleveland. Okay. At this point, there's a a little boy by the name of Adam Walsh, um, who is abducted from a Sears department store at the Hollywood Mall in Hollywood, Florida on July 27, 1981. His severed head is found two weeks later in a drainage canal alongside Highway 60, Eha Junction in rural St. Lucie County, Florida. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a, uh, all over the news at this time. Um, John Walsh, the father of the little boy, completely rejects this theory. And in fact, Otis Toole ends up being found guilty for Adam Walsh's murder, despite the various holes in his story but there was enough circumstantial evidence proving it was him so otis tool actually ends up getting charged for this however what people haven't really talked about um, and you can find this under the christopher stewart interview is that there is a theory that jeffrey dahmer was actually in the mall that day Mm. and um that a couple different witnesses actually saw him. And I'm going to read you a quote right now. And I believe this is from Christopher Stewart. And he says, yes, this is from Christopher Stewart. He says, I had no idea Jeffrey Dahmer lived in South Florida until 2017. I moved to Hollywood in 1981 with my mom and two sisters. We lived there for just over a year, 1981, and 1983. And I haven't been back to the area since i learned that Dahmer was there while uh, accidentally coming across an interview online of others talking about their encounter with him. I remember entering the Sears, we shopped in the mall and she bought me a new pair of shoes. It was a fun time. We also went for lunch in a nearby restaurant on that day. Um, He then starts to talk about the restaurant he's in um, and that he has to use the the restroom. So, and he has to go, I'm sorry, he has to go use the payphone, which is by the restroom. He was going to call his grandparents. So he says, so that's what I did. I returned back down the small hallway toward the restrooms to make the call. I remember the conversation being extremely engaging, engaging to a point of experiencing my surroundings only subtly. I was lost in conversation. Looking back, I know time was unseemingly passingly quickly at the time. So he's really invested in this phone call. He goes, at some point during the phone call, I began to feel a great deal of uneasiness come over me. I'd face the phone a few times. I remember which position my back towards the bathrooms. I would turned myself toward the phone, toward the bathroom, and then back toward the phone again. My internal sense began to feel someone behind me, but it wasn't fully registering with my brain yet. I remember there was someone scurrying back and forth behind me. I could feel the restroom door swing open and closed behind me, continuing with the conversation with my grandparents, not realizing I was being stalked yet. It was at that moment that the restroom door opened quickly or slowly, excuse me, the guy had his head down as if he were trying to regain his composure and then looked right up at me into my eyes. He goes on and on and talks about to talk about this whole situation. But he, and then they ask him in the interview, when did you realize that this person you saw in the mall that day was Jeffrey Dahmer? He said, I didn't realize I had for 35 years. Wow. So this now coincides with um, Willis Morgan's interview called The Frustrated Witness, um, who also states that, again, it was Jeffrey Dahmer who actually committed the murder of Adam Walsh. So um, the interviewer says, of course, uh, at what point did you look back and realize it was Jeffrey? He said, Wednesday, July 24th, 1991 was my first day back to work for the week. I was in the press room office and the paper started coming in for a paper check. We had papers from six presses lined up on a long counter. We started going through the papers together. When I turned a page somewhere in the A section, I stopped. I saw a small mugshot of someone arrested two days previously and got an immediate flashback. I started freaking out. This is him. This is the guy I saw in the mall. So he goes on and on and on and on to talk about this. And he said, it is my fervent wish that frustrated witness finally puts to rest any doubt that it was indeed Jeffrey Dahmer who abducted and murdered little Adam Walsh and not Otis Toole. So there are two witnesses in the mall that day who are 150% positive that they fingered the wrong guy and Jeffrey Dahmer was actually responsible for the murder of Adam Walsh.
2: Interesting. I bet the details of that are pretty fascinating because I, mm-hmm. the, the frustrated witness, there's, it sounds like there's a whole story there of, of what that person saw and, mm-hmm. you know, that would be pretty fascinating. But then, of course, it's eyewitness, so. It is,
1: but the the, the biggest piece is um, Otis Tool Toole as, was a suspect, but he wasn't even in the state of Florida at that time. <laughs> Yeah. Right? So they had uh, to get somebody. And I would, to, to bring it back to, to John Walsh, the father, I would imagine once they had solidified it, it was Otis Tool, he did not want to think it could be anybody else. He had to believe that they had found the killer. Um, so I would imagine uh, that he wanted it closed, and that was that, and they didn't want to hear about anything else.
2: Well, and we're just seeing it in story after story lately. I mean, doing the show, watching all these documentaries, it does seem like that's a theme of you know the police, the investigators. They're they're portrayed at least they're portrayed as if, and so are the families, that that they find the person and then they're so fixated on closing it and finding a closure.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna stop here tonight. Um, and next week we are going to get into um the after the military and how his murder sprees and insatiable urges, uh, continue. We're going to get into victim profiles. We are going to talk about his sexual perversions, how they increase over time, uh, loneliness, abandonment, um, how his behaviors become more deviant. We are going to get into some details about the murder. So I just want to let people know that the next two episodes are going to be pretty descriptive. Um, because I feel like it's necessary for people to really truly capture what his obsessions were and what his fantasies were. So I just want to throw that out there because it does get gruesome.
2: Yeah. Fair enough. And we'll do another warning at the beginning of the next episode for those who forget I was wondering super quick before we end, if you wanted to ta- have a quick discussion about sort of the unreliability of eyewitness testimony or?
1: Yeah, I mean, over time, it's no longer credible in court. And they've done a lot of studies around, especially um, if it's, if it's uh, this is just an example of a white witness and they're trying to pick out an African-American suspect, how there's a lot of, I can't think of the sociological term right now, but essentially that they can't really distinguish one African-American suspect from the other. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of um, people wrongfully accused due to eyewitness testimony and the way that our, and I'm sure you can add to this too, Shannon, the way that our memory works, um, it, it eyewitness testimony is, is unreliable.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the thing I would just amplify or uh, explicate in what you're saying is the idea that Every time we remember something, we re-remember, we remember. In other words, if we're re-dash-membering something, we are re-putting something together, meaning membering it. So our brains re-put the memory together in slightly different ways. I mean, it's one of the reasons why... Our clients will often say, "Oh, I feel like I'm I'm showing up every week, and I'm just telling you the same story over and over again." And then that's when I provide this piece of psychoeducation, as I usually say something along the lines of, "That's okay. That's appropriate. It's your brain and your psyche's way of re-putting the story together until we find a narrative that heals." And so that's, I mean, that's coming from where I come from, and but in this situation that that fact about brains really makes eyewitness testimony, unfortunately, and our own memories. Um, well, they're, they're an illusion in many ways. I mean, and they
1: change with time. Like you said, you know, they change yeah. with time and the longer somebody has to recall, uh, someone they may have seen once the yeah. less accurate it becomes over time.
2: When I was reading, um, I was reading on I think it was like the National Center of State Courts website or what have you and how they have put together this whole uh, like the literature recommends the following ways of doing eyewitness identification so there's mm-hmm. a whole there's a whole way you're supposed to do it you know it's like unbiased witness instructions and you know proper selection of the fillers meaning the other people that stand with the suspect and double blind administration and sequential present. There's all these because of what they found in the research about eyewitness identification being unreliable, they put into pl- practice all of these factors, or at least they did a lot of research and they made suggestions. Now, whether or not those suggestions are um, the way things go now,
1: I don't know. But, yeah.
2: Yeah. So back then, mm, you know, I understand why sp- Perhaps someone who was innocent may have gone to jail for
1: those. Yeah. Are- well, and like it says, you know, when did you first know? And like 35 years later, I mean, imagine. again. Yeah. I mean, it, but it's also not, it, it's not uh, completely, um, dropping my words tonight, ridiculous to think that it, it could have been dumber if you no, put the facts the together. Yeah, exactly. Like that, that's, that's the thing is it's like,
2: it's, completely unreliable and i wouldn't believe it but it's also could be the truth right that's the thing it's like just because an eyewitness is unreliable doesn't mean that they aren't accurate in what in what who they're pointing to that's right it just means we can't convict people on that or at least we really really try not to anymore that's right yeah okay well that was fascinating i feel like we have a sense of who he was prior to the most famous part of his life that we're about to go into right in the next episode. But I feel like we have a, a solid ground to go forward to, to try and understand the acts he then commits. Um, so for those of you who are interested, which we hope you all are, we will be doing part three of Jeffrey Dahmer next week. Our episodes upload on Wednesday and Please tune back in on Friday for our uh, looser show, which is called shrink chat, where we talk about all kinds of things. So this is terror talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm
1: Kathy sleep safe, everyone.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of terror talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.